Exodus chapter 21 this morning, and thanks to our Sunday school group team that worked so hard to get this together, uh, everybody that showed up here when uh, you all were busy about your Saturday evening, they were here setting up, decorating, and doing all kinds of fun things, and yesterday we had a great time at Pingles, thanks for everyone that came out, we had a tremendous time of fellowship and just enjoyed each other's company, it was so fun to get together, and we had a beautiful, beautiful weather as well, so it was just perfect, it was awesome, and for everyone that's helped to get this going today, God bless you, that's been awesome. Exodus chapter 21, Exodus 21 and verse number 2, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may, be, he may serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must also be freed with him. Skipping down to verse 5. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the doorpost, the door of, or doorpost, and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. And after that, the slave will serve his master for life. And while you're all pondering in your brain of how possibly could pastor preach a message out of this text this morning, why don't we ask God to help us understand his word? I promise you there's something meaningful here for you this morning. God, we thank you, and we love you for what you're doing in our midst. We thank you for your word. Your word is life, and we pray, God, that you'd open our understanding to it this morning. Let your presence be felt. Touch our lives, God, and help us to understand your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. Um, so right off the hop, the word slave comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, a lot of negative connotations, and thankfully it's not so much of a, a, a uh, problem in our nation today, although it does exist and there are issues with it. Um, it's at least publicly and, and predominantly regarded as an evil enterprise, and so it should be. So when you read in your Bible and you, you don't see that God is abolishing slavery in the Old Testament, it kind of raises an eyebrow. And if you know me, I like to point out the fact that sometimes we read the Bible through the lens of our worldview, the current way we see the world. Um, and, and so looking at this passage through those, that lens seems odd and it seems strange. It seems out of place. It doesn't seem like God's character to rather than abolish slavery, he, he kind of gives parameters for where it's acceptable. And, and to, to look at it just with those glasses on it, it's offensive. I'll be honest, I, in looking at it first time, I had issues with the Bible. I had issues with God, and I had to really go, this is against the character that I see in, in the Word elsewhere. This is, this is a contradiction. This doesn't seem right. It goes against what I believe. It goes against what I've been taught. And, uh, you know, I would never dream of owning a slave. It, it's, it's unethical. It's so wrong in so many levels. It's, 
it's a disgrace. And so how, how does this fit in the text? How does this fit within the character of God? And, and, and to do that, you have to go and look at it through the lens of those who was reading this for the first time. You have to put on their worldview and, and look at the world through what they already saw. Slavery, if you remember, uh, was not really God's approval because God rescued his people from slavery. If God, if God thought slavery was something that was okay and acceptable, then, then he might have just left his people in, in Egypt and tried to make their life better in the midst of slavery. If God felt like slavery was something that was appropriate or, or okay, then, then he probably wouldn't have rescued his people out of bondage in Egypt and, and set them free to be their own nation. So, so God cannot be contradictory. So what is he talking about? And, and, and what is going on here? Well, well slavery for the Jews was, was radically different than the rest of the world. See, the rest of the world viewed slavery much in the way that we might understand it in our Western world today. It was oppression. It was taking people and treating them like they were, they were livestock or like they were lesser beings. So they, they, their only good was to, to eat the, the, the scraps and work the longest and work the hardest and work in the most difficult ways and difficult circumstances to do the worst kinds of jobs. And, and that's the way the world at the time saw slavery. And you, you controlled slaves through physical discipline, whips, different uh, kinds of, uh, of brutal treatment. But this was not how God instructed his people to treat others. In fact, in one passage, God says, you know that you're not supposed to treat people the way you were treated in Egypt. Remember where you were brought out of and, and remember not to treat others the way you were treated. So, so what is the parameters? Why does God not just say, get rid of slavery altogether? Why make it okay? Well, to read that, under, you have to understand the larger context. In those days, to pay off a debt, you could not borrow money. In those days, to pay off a large uh, uh, problem in your life, if you got into debt, if you somehow accrued a, a massive problem or, or situation in your life, a health crisis, or uh, maybe a family member who needed a lot of money and you gave it away, but then you're now left holding the bag. Some, some circumstance of life that leaves you in the lurch, maybe a bad crop year that puts you in a, in a, in a, in a, a backwards way, or maybe it was the, the loss of your livestock through a disease or something that, that affected your capital, something that affected your way to earn and provide for your family, and you get into some kind of a debt, but you could not pay it off. The way to avoid destitution and poverty, the way to avoid dying of hunger and dying of thirst God said you could sell yourself as a slave for a period of seven years maximum. There was an end date. It was never eternal, lifelong slavery. If you got into a situation financially you couldn't get out of, God said, okay, you can set up this way to pay the debt off, that in seven years the debt would be freed and canceled. 
and that in seven years, regardless of how much you've paid down on your debt, you are free. You are restored. Your freedom is restored to you. You don't have to serve. You don't have to continue to work for them. You can continue to work as an employee if they want to hire you. But you are no longer obligated as a slave after seven years. It really wasn't slavery, what we would call slavery today. It was a better term, and what the King James Bible uses is a bond servant. You were a servant for a period of time under the bonds. And, and this was like no other nation. No other nation in the world had a setup like this. If you look at history of the time when Israel was coming out of Egypt, if you were in debt in another nation and you could not pay that debt off, you became a slave for life. And you would undergo the worst kinds of treatment and the worst kinds of behavior. So, so when you read this, don't read it through the lens of your worldview, but look at it through the lens of Scripture. This was actually God's way of providing for the poor and the needy. It was a, a system. Now, that's not to say Israel executed it the way God intended. If you read on, you'll find the prophets talking about how they were actually mistreating their slaves. They were holding on to them longer than seven years. And for that, God sent the nation into slavery to the Babylonians. To the, and that's a whole other story for a whole other time. But the nation itself, God's intention, God's word was, this is how you're to treat those who are in a bad way. The law protected slaves. In fact, the, there's a whole passage in, in, uh, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and, and even in Leviticus about what you were allowed to do to a slave. If, For example, if you permanently injured your slave, they were immediately released. Their slavery was canceled. Immediate, if they were permanently injured, if they were disabled by working for you, they were immediately released and set free, and you were now obligated to take care of them because they were working for you when they were hurt. God set these laws up in Scripture. Slaves who ran away from an oppressive master were allowed to be freed. If a master was overly oppressive, a slave had the right to run away. And one of the places they could run was one of the seven cities of refuge. They could find a, a way of escape. They could get out, make their way to a city of refuge, and plead their case before the priest, before the magistrates of that city, and they would be released immediately from their obligation of slavery. Every seven years, they were released from their slavery. Every 50 years in Israel, all debts of every amount were completely canceled. If you lost your family's land in a, in a trade or in a bad deal, in 50 years, that land, no questions asked, was automatically returned to your family name. Everything you had, every 50 years, it was called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, that everything you lost was returned to you. Everything your family lost was returned to you because God wanted his nation to be set up in a way that nobody was without, that nobody was, was unable to meet the needs of their family. Slavery or bond servant was a type of welfare. It was a type of aiding those who were in a bad situation. It was a way of rescuing out of a, a certain death because it wasn't like today where, you know, if someone's in a bad way, they lose their job, they can apply for EI. They can apply for some kind of a, a assistance. They can go to a shelter. They can find something. There's some way that that's those who are without, and of course, I'm not advocating that our system is perfect. There's so many flaws and holes 
even with our own, within our own system. But, but at least our government has, there's something there. It may not be perfect, but it's something. And so here it is. This is God's way of saying, in, instead of dying alone on a farm, you could be rescued out of your situation by allowing your, your family to be pledged to an individual, a, a more wealthy individual, to work for them so the, your meals were taken care of. You would have housing. You would have a job. You would have something to do to be effective. Maybe you'd learn a new skill or a new trade through your, your years as a bond servant. And you could, at the end of that seven years, you could say, you know what, this is, this is going to stink for seven years. But at the end of seven years, we're free. At the end of seven years, there's an out. It's not insurmountable. There's no problem that's, that's, that's too large that we can't handle it. The God has provided a way for us to escape it. In fact, by comparison, Israel had the most humane laws of their day to the degree that other nations would look at Israel as a threat because they were so humane that other nations feared they would attract the down and out, and the down and out would come and would, would fill up Israel, and they would become new Israelites, and Israel would grow to a degree that they could not be tussled with by other nations. So Israel's, Israel's laws were not only odd, they were threatening to the way society operated. I mean, that's, that's not uncommon how the world looks at the things of God like a threat. Not just like, oh, that's an odd way of doing it, but that's actually a threat to our way of life. And this is how God did it. And so, so all this to say, what, what ended up happening was after the end of seven years, let's say a man who was in great debt goes into bond slavery or bond servanthood. For seven years. And at the end of seven years, he falls in love with his master's family. He realizes, I'm much better off working for somebody else than working for myself. I, I, I excel here. I fit here. I, my master trusts me. The one I'm working for, we've built a good relationship. He's been kind to me. He's taken care of my family. I've grown to love him. He actually provided me a wife. It wasn't uncommon for, for a master to provide one of his bond servants a wife. And then they would get married and perhaps have children during that seven years. And, and the, the man could grow attached to the family he belonged to. And, and the Lord said, if that was the case, where the relationship between the, the bond servant and the, the master was so, so loving and so well that the servant could remain in the house. He could remain on and say, you know what, I, 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 I don't think I want to go back to being free, per se, because this I actually like my job. I like my new job. I do it well. I'm able to provide for my family. I'm taken care of. My needs are met. I have housing. I'm respected. I'm, I'm a valuable part of society. It wasn't uncommon for trusted servants to be given the signet ring of the master, to go into town and do business on behalf of the master, to take the, the, the seal of the master in a ring and, and, and assign official documents on behalf of the master. You read the parables of Jesus. Jesus uh, tells a parable of a master who leaves on a trip for, for days and days and days, weeks and weeks and weeks, and gives 
gives money to his servants and says, I want you to invest this money and double it. And he gives 10 talents, which is 10 sums of large sums of money to one servant, five talents to another, and one talent to one. And he gave it based on the degree of their ability. And he gives it to these men and they go and they, they double the master's money. The man who had five now has 10. The man who has, has two now has five. I think I got the numbers wrong at first. The one who has one buries the money. And doesn't invest it. And the master comes home and he rebukes the man who did not invest, but he blesses those who doubled their money with more responsibility. This was, this was God's image of a healthy relationship, a healthy working relationship. And so the servant could get to the place where he says, I love working here. I love living here. I I've been rescued. I, I was about to starve. My family was on the brink of destruction. We lost everything in a deal we made. We, we made a financial decision, and we lost it all. And, and if it wasn't for this gentleman here who, who allowed us to come in, then, then we would be in a really bad way. We would be in such a bad situation, we wouldn't be able to make it. So the, the, the Bible says, God says, the, the servant can pledge himself to the master for the rest of his life. And so he would take the servant to a door. He would take them to a door. And then they would pierce the ear of the servant by taking the awl or the pick that they would use to pierce to perhaps put an earring in the ear of the slave. And, and they would pierce it through and the, 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 the significance of it was that it would pierce through to the door. And this intrigued me. I thought, this is an odd ceremony, a, a strange thing. What is this all about piercing the door? The door is a significant symbol in, in, in Scripture. And it's really, I mean, we, we've talked about doors before here in messages and, and sermons, how it's, it's significant to the home. It's a symbol of entrance. You know, you go through a door. You enter by way of a door. You, you, you enter and exit through a door. And a door represents the, the, the gateway to something, a new opportunity. You might say a door has opened for me. And so it's a new opportunity. Or, or I'm, I'm, I'm opening my door to you. It's a way of saying you're welcome here. It's a, it's a barrier, a line of demarcation where, where I begin and where you end. And, you know, this kind of... A whole relationship is set up by the door. When God pronounced the last plague on Egypt, he had the people strike the doorpost with the blood of a lamb. It was a way of symbolizing this is, the, this is a house that is covered. This whole family is, is symbolized by the doorway. The doorway represents the whole family. And so when the blood was applied to the doorposts of the home in Egypt on the last night of their slavery, God says, basically, if the, if the doorposts are covered in the blood of the Lamb, then I know that this family has been protected. This family is marked by the blood. The Lamb has died in their place. They don't have to pay the penalty of death because death has already been paid for. The price has been paid. And the door represented the whole family. Later on, the Lord would tell his people, he would say, you know, commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine, tie them to your hands, wear them on your forehead as a reminder, teach them to your children, talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up, and write my law, write my name on the doorposts of your house, on your gates. 
So every time you walk through the doors, you remember who you belong to. Every time you come home, you remember who's taking care of you. Every time you enter and leave, you go through the door. You remember my commandments. You remember my love. You remember my name. You remember who you are. It's a way of marking your life. The door represents you and me and us. We're one. So it's interesting that this this master would take his servant who's now fallen in love with his master, who's the master who rescued him from a terrible situation. He rescued him through his kindness and brought him into his home and brought him to his land, gave him a job, provided him food, provided him welfare, whatever he needed to survive and learn a trade, learn a skill and become productive and and effective. And now the servant has fallen in love with his master and says, I want to continue for life. I'm, I'm, I'm pledged to this family. This family has become my family. So the Bible says that the, the master would take the servant to the door and he would pierce his ear and essentially would stick to the door. It was a way of saying you've become part of this family. You're now one with the rest of the family. You, you weren't born into the family, but we're bringing you into this family. We're bringing you under the protection of a door. So you have to understand the significance of, of, of walking through somebody else's door. In Israel, if, at this time, if you walked into the house of an individual, your safety was more important than the safety of the family. In, in the honor-shame culture, the way it works is the guest is the most important person in the house. They are treated with the highest level of respect. They are given the seat of honor. They're given the best drink. I remember my wife and I visiting a family who's from the Middle East. They're from that, that area of the world, and and they served us some juice when we arrived. We showed up, and they, they served us juice. And I noticed that the kids were anxiously waiting for this. It was a special drink from Pakistan. And the kids were anxiously waiting for us to drink our juice. Because as soon as we drank our juice, I noticed that the first sip I took, the littlest one ran over to mommy and said, Mommy, can I drink my juice now? Mommy, can I drink my juice now? Because they knew house rules, guest drinks first. Guest drinks first, and then you can have some. We won't even pour it in your cup until the guest drinks first. This is how they viewed the world. This is how they viewed society. So to come in to the door of someone's house was a significant thing. It was a large thing. So to be be attached to the door through the ear, it seems strange to us. It seems you know, that's not how we would, we would sign a contract. We would write up an agreement. We would, you know, send a text message. We'd maybe do it through email. Now you can sign documents online. You can, you know, there's all kinds of non-invasive ways of, of binding an agreement. But in this day, for whatever reason, this was the significance. And I kind of see it like this, that, that the servant literally could come to the door and the door was opened. And basically, it was a way of saying, see all this out there? You have the opportunity to be released from your obligation to this family. You've been a good servant. You've done well. We'll be sad to see you go. But if you want to go, the door is open. All you have to do is leave. All you have to do, we will we'll bless you, we'll be friends forever, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go back to being neighbors, whatever, if you move back into your house. But, but just so you know, the door is open. You don't have to stay here. 
And the servant would, through the ceremony, say, no, no, this is where I want to be. This is my choice. Nobody's forcing me to stay here, but I've come to love this family. I've come to love the life I live, the life I used to live. I, I, I can't go back to that life anymore. I, there's nothing for me there. If I go back, I might get in debt again. I might get in trouble again. I, I might make another wrong decision. Here there's security. There's consistency. There's a family that I didn't have before. Before I knew you, I, I was uneligible. But when I came to your house, I got married here. I, I had children here. I love my life. I love my family. I love this home. I want to stay. And so he would make a permanent commitment. I couldn't help but read this, hear these stories, and see it through this new lens and begin to think of my own relationship with God. I turn to Luke chapter 7 and verse 47. And Jesus is is talking to his disciples and talking to those around him about someone who who was in, in, in dire trouble. He says, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus introduces us to a principle that that to those whom have had little forgiven in their life, perhaps they don't see themselves as, as needing the mercy or the grace of a benevolent God who loves them and wants the best for them. Maybe, maybe they, didn't, they don't see it, you know, but, but this woman that is now kneeling in the home of Simon, and, and, and now he is, he is reaching down and, and, and ministering to her and, and, and she is pouring perfume over the feet of Jesus and, and washing his feet with her tears and drying it with her hair. This woman who had had many sins in her life who Jesus had encountered and had forgiven her sins and the, the disciples were kind of scorning her for her, her overt worship of Jesus, her, her overt ministry to Jesus' feet and Jesus said you don't understand she's doing this because she's had so much forgiven in her life because who has received little gives little but this woman who's received so much forgiveness has now great love that goes to extreme measures. See, one might look at that servant and say, this is a rather extreme thing, son. You know, you, you've been here for seven years, but, but perhaps it was a dire, maybe he was on the point of dying. Perhaps he was at the point of starvation and this kind, gentle man came along and says, why don't you come and work for me for seven years? We'll draw up the agreements. And after seven years, you're free to go. But at least you'll be fed. At least you'll be clothed. At least you'll have a job. You'll have something to do in society. And so Jesus is saying, those who have been forgiven little, love little. And then I remember that Jesus made the distinction that but I'm kind of like that man, kind of struggling and wrestling, trying to make ends meet myself, but not, not really successful at it. In John 8, 34, Jesus answered and said, Truly I say unto you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And just to make things clear, this is no longer the nice kind of slave that we were talking about before. This is the kind of slave that comes along with, that word comes along with a lot of baggage. That's the kind of word Jesus used when he talked about our relationship to sin. When we, when we obey our flesh, when we obey 
our, our, our natural native impulses and desires, our, our natural tendencies to lie or to deceive or to, to, to uh, lust or to engage in, in some kind of sinful practice, Jesus says you become a slave to that kind of lifestyle. You become a slave to it. It determines how you live now. Because to lie, now you have to use another lie to cover the first, unless you want to come clean. If you're going to continue to, to, to deceive or to disobey, you've got to continue on that path in order to, to hold up the facade. If you're going to, to give in to lust, it becomes an endless cycle of, of going back into old behaviors that you don't like. You know, there's that... that uh, before the behavior, the behavior, and then the consequence. There's this, this uh, cycle that goes on and on and on. And Jesus says you become a slave to that thing that is a sin. And that the wages of that sin, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, is death. There, there's nothing good at the end of that road. It's the death of a relationship. It's the death uh, 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 of your, your purity or your, your, your life. It's the, it's the death of a, of, a, of, a, of a lifestyle. Maybe it brings you to the point of addiction that brings the death of your health, that brings the, the demise of your life in some way, shape, or form. And if it does not produce any of that in this life, it separates you from God, which is the Bible calls the second death. It's the worst kind of death. Permanent separation from God. The wages, what sin pays you for your servitude. What sin gives you on Friday when you get your paycheck from sin. It's not life. It's not more abundance. It's not good things, but it's more death. It's more depression. It's more weight. It's more burden. It's more guilt. It's more shame. It's more uh, conflict. It's more and more and more bringing you down further under its control. But then God says the free gift that God gives is eternal life. Why is it a free gift? Because you didn't do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to get it. It's a free gift. Someone's already paid the price for the gift. All you have to do is receive it. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is obey and do what God's Word tells you. It's, it's the, the simplest solution to a lifelong problem. 2 Corinthians 4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Not only does slay, sin enslave you, it blinds you. It blinds you. It wants to shroud the truth in darkness. So eventually, if you're there long enough, you begin to look at goodness as though it was an evil thing. As though God's word was actually oppressive and suppressive, that it, God all he wants to do is control your life and, and ruin all your fun and, 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 and judge you and condemn you. And, and this couldn't be further from the truth. And, and what sin does is it turns the truth into a lie. It blinds you. It keeps you shrouded and clouded. And so Jesus, in the first years of his ministry, preached a message and said, Come unto me, all you who labor, Matthew eleven twenty eight, and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus is using some of the same kind of analogies that we read about in Exodus. Come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy laden. The word heavy laden is a, is a shipping terminology. 
Because a ship, if you've noticed, they have different colors on them. If you look on the ship, there's a line where the paint changes. Perhaps the top of the ship is white, but there's a point where the white stops and it turns to a darker color, perhaps a gray or a blue or a red. And there's a line right at the bottom near the water where the, the, the line changes. That's not there just to, to, to identify it as a ship. That's actually a way of measuring how much weight is on the ship. Because if the ship is too heavy, the water line will go above the color line. And that's how they can know by visuals if the ship is heavy laden. And Jesus said, come unto me all you who are labor and heavy laden. And you've taken on too much weight. Your life is weighed down to the point where you could, you could navigate. A ship that is heavy laden could get out into open water and it would still float. But if a storm arose on that water, the ship would capsize, would be in trouble, would not be able to navigate because the, the sufficient weight of the boat would be too great to keep it afloat or safe. And Jesus is basically saying here, there's, there's a heaviness in your life. You're carrying too much weight. You've appropriated too much stuff in your life, burdens, guilt, that you yourself cannot carry. Like the man in the beginning that we read about in, in Exodus 21 who took on too much debt. He had too many problems. Maybe there was an unforeseen circumstance that weighed his life down to the point where he was going to starve or lose everything. He was weary and heavy laden. And Jesus said, come unto me and I will give you rest. What is the rest that Jesus talks about in Luke or in Matthew 11? Verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you. And you go, wait, I thought you said rest. You know, rest to me is, is an empty couch free of children and a guarantee that when I lay on that couch, they will not come and dive bomb my stomach in an effort to see what I ate for lunch. There, that is rest. It's, it's not a lot. I mean, rest is even driving in a kid-free vehicle. I mean, that's restful, right? I love my kids, but, but there, there's lots of energy. As you could see this morning, my, my children have lots of energy like all children do. And so Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Kind of hear Jesus saying, and, and take a few extra children upon you. <laughs> take my yoke on you. I'm going to put you to work. The way I'm going to help you rest is work. But instead of working like you worked before, this time you're going to work with me. He said, take my yoke. A yoke is something that connects two animals together. A yoke uh, wraps around the neck of one ox and ties it to the neck of another ox so that the weight of two oxes is greater than the one. The, the, the pulling strength of two is, is exponential compared to the weight of the weight of pulling of one. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Get yoked up with me. Join forces with me. Instead of doing it all on your own, join forces with me. That's what happened in Exodus 20. The guy couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't make it on his own. He was going to be starving on his own. So he yoked himself up with someone else who was in a better place. 
someone else who had the resources to meet his needs. He yoked up with someone else who was stronger than he was. He yoked up with someone else who was well off, who was in a better financial place, who was not in debt, who owned land and property and could meet the needs. He yoked up with the others. And Jesus says, you take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It was an uncommon to take a young ox who had lots of energy and strength and yoke him up with an old ox who was waning in his strength but had the wisdom of how to pace himself throughout the day. And so the young ox would provide the vim and the vigor, if you will, but the old ox would provide the stability and the wisdom and the knowing when to start and to stop, to hear the, mo- the voice of the master and to go when the master spoke and to stop when the master stopped. And what would happen is the young ox would learn from the old ox. And Jesus says, basically, yoke up with me and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm not going to abuse you. I'm not, I'm not going to mistreat you. I'm going to work alongside you. You're still going to work. By the way, the Bible calls work rest. It's good to work. It's good to work. It's good to have restful work. Restful work is work that is accomplishing something. Because when you're done the labor, though you may be weary in your body, there is a, a, a joy that comes from looking back and saying, look at what we did. Look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished in my day. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come unto me. Cast your care on me. I can carry the heavy load. You're carrying too much. You're holding on to guilt and shame of your past. You need to let it go. You need to release it. And, and although this custom of, uh, of, uh, of, of taking the slave and he, he, he put the pick through his ear to the door is unusual, it speaks a universal message in the Scripture that when we were down and out, Jesus came along and said, it looks like you're carrying a little bit too much. Would you learn from me? Would you yoke up with me, partner with me for a time and learn the way I do it? The old ox would be quick to anticipate the the beck and call of his master. And so the young ox would learn. And we come to Jesus with heavy loads and heavy weights and heavy cares, but we can lean on his wisdom. We can lean on his understanding. We can lean on his his love and his kindness. And there comes a moment in our life, you know, I, I look at this whole story and the, 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 the man who was down and out becomes a bondservant to the one who is well off. But after a period of seven years, the door opens. He says, the door is now open. And it's up to you. Do you want to stay or do you want to go? You're free. There's no obligations for you. you you've met your seven years. Now it's time to go. And although this is, this is more of an observation, really. Now, I wouldn't say this is a direct intent of this verse or, or uh, you know, an exegetical understanding of the scripture. But, but just by observation, I've watched people come into the church and they find that rest in Christ. 
They get saved, filled with the Holy Ghost. They're baptized. Their sins are washed away. There's a joy that enters their life. They begin to make changes. They begin to learn from Jesus. They yoke up with him, and their lifestyle changes. It's, I've seen people, they never sat through a Bible study with someone telling them they had to turn this off and turn this on and, and change this or change that, but they just begin to change things because Jesus is working in their heart. Jesus is working in their life, but there comes a point of time in their relationship with Jesus where it seems as though the Lord brings them to the door of the house and opens the door and says, it's your choice. You've been here for so long. You've you've been worshiping here at this church for so many years. You've been coming for so much time. And now the door is open. Did you want to go? There's no obligation for you to stay, and, and there's no line of demarcation. It's not the, it's no, there's no definite period of time, but there is a point in your walk with God where God will open up the door and say, would you like to stay or would you like to go? Would you like to remain in the house? I rescued you from a, a difficult situation. I, I, I paid for the sins that you could not pay for yourself, but it's up to you. I'm not going to hold you here. Would you like to stay or would you like to leave? And I've seen people turn to the Lord and say, thank you, I'm going to go. Something's calling me out there and I want to see what that is. I counseled people, I've sat with young people who the week before were crying in an altar and praying and the next week they were looking out into the world to a relationship that called them away from God. The person they wanted was not going in the direction of getting closer to God and they were pulling at them and I could feel it was like the door opened and the Lord said, well, would you like to go or would you like to stay? And I've rejoiced at those who turned around and says, no, Lord, to where else am I going to go? There was a point in Jesus' ministry, this is maybe a sober ending to a rather energetic start this morning. But I couldn't get away from this message as I was preparing this week. Because I think the Lord is always bringing us to that door and saying, would you like to go or would you like to stay? Now, don't worry. Nobody's going to stick your ear to the doorway of the church here. Nobody's going to make you do some crazy ceremony. We're not a cult, please, okay? There's no weird uh, ceremonies here. But there's, there's a spiritual connection to what's being said. Jesus, Jesus got his disciples together and he began to teach and preach and 5,000 people show up and Jesus breaks bread miraculously and multiplies, breaks fish, multiplies, feeds the hungry and they begin to follow him everywhere. And Jesus finally turned around to the large group of people and says, you know the only reason why you people are following me is because I did the miracle of the loaves and the fish and you're wondering if I'll make another meal for you for free. And they're kind of like, what do you mean, Jesus? We're, we're here because, you know, you're such a great guy. And Jesus said, no, you're here to, to, to see another miracle. You're here to see another uh, loaves and fish situation. You're not committed to the cause that I'm preaching about. You're not here because the words I'm saying are the words of life, but you're looking for another show. You're looking for another performance. And basically, Jesus, the Bible says the people begin to murmur in disagreement when Jesus said this begin to murmur amongst themselves. What is Jesus? Why is he he changing his tune? Finally, Jesus turned around to them and says, uh, if you're going to 
follow me. You're going to have to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. And if you don't, you're going to have no life in you. And they all went, whoa, what's this? The crazy things that Jesus is saying. And, and to know, again, put on the lenses of the day. I'm not going to take the time to go through it all. But Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He's saying, if you're going to, if you're going to become part of me, you've got to literally you've got to digest everything that I'm saying. You've actually got to change your lifestyle to reflect the God that you're following. And and many disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard thing. Who can understand it? And many that, the Bible says, many that day left him. They left him. In in essence, Jesus opened the door and says, if you're really going to stick around, guys, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. It, it, it require, following God requires a commitment that eventually some point in your walk with God, God's going to look at you and is going to say, are you here for the long haul or was this just a nice seven-year reprieve? Was this just a nice something or rather to get you through a tough point in your life or is there something here that you're feeling that's pulling you into an eternal relationship with me? This is a commitment kind of relationship. And the disciples said, this is a hard thing. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, are you going to go too? And Peter said those famous words, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I may not understand everything you say, Jesus. I may not fully appreciate everything you're doing, but the words that you're speaking have an eternal pull to them that I cannot find anywhere else. If I leave the door, Jesus, yes, I will. you will find pleasure out there. You will find purpose. Hear me. I'm not here to preach that your life is going to be a downslope turn the moment you leave God and leave the church. No, you might actually find your life improves. You're, you, you, know, you might find that things get better for you on a temporary level, but eventually at some point along the road, you're going to look back and and say, I wonder what would have happened if I would have stuck it out and remained committed, even if I didn't understand. I can call Jesus my Savior. I can call Jesus my God. I can call Him my healer and my deliverer. I can call Him my friend and my brother. I can call Him my father, my comforter, my counselor, my way maker. But when I call Him Lord, I'm committing myself to Him. I'm committing my life. He calls the shots. His word is the one I follow. His word is the one that I cling to. His word has priority in my life. When I need an answer, I go to him in prayer. When I need counsel, I find out what does the Bible have to say about this? What does God's word have to say about this? How can I live my life in a way that pleases Jesus? We stand this morning. Sister Bryson, if, if you can play this morning or come because there's a commitment level to our relationship with God and it may not be a happy jump shout dance around and get excited message but it's one that that God is just asking notice Jesus said my yoke is easy try not to look at it through the lens of your worldview serving Jesus is work but it's work that he promises to be yoked up with you. He's beside you all the way. He's beside you in the good times. He's beside you in the bad. If you commit your life to Jesus, if you commit yourself to him, he will walk through the dark valleys with you.